First Timothy chapter 3. As you're going to First Timothy chapter 3, I should probably say hello. Um, if I hadn't, my name is Lance, and it's a joy to get to consider the Bible with you. I serve as a pastor here. I'd love to get to know you if we haven't gotten a chance to connect. Uh, if we haven't, or maybe if you haven't been around a while, or if you just want a good reminder of where we are uh, with things and in life, uh, I will get you caught up to speed. We are looking through the book of First Timothy, and one of the most common ways that we consider the Bible together on Sundays especially is we start at the beginning of a book, and then we try to carefully walk through it the best we can until the end. This means that as much as we may want to, we don't sidestep difficult issues or hard topics. It means as much as we possibly can, we're trying to submit to God and to His Word and say, all that you have for us is all that we need. So, where we find ourselves after having started in the beginning of 1 Timothy is we are now in the middle of the third chapter. And what we've done is we've put a little title over each of these concepts because what Paul is doing is he's telling Timothy, here's how things ought to be put in order. You see, Paul was kind of a force of nature. You ever seen someone who's sort of a force of nature? They they come in and things happen and stuff spins up and there's new businesses and new sales and all kinds of things. They're just a person who gets things done. You know, I think of Paul a little bit like uh, the proverb where the, the stall is clean where there are no ox or oxen, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. So there's this trade-off, right, that you, you get things done, but then there's all sorts of a mess left over. Now, in Paul's circumstances, what often happened is he'd go into a city and all kinds of things would happen. The Spirit of God would descend and people would come to know Jesus and they'd be set free. He would topple industries of idol building. There would be riots. He would be stoned, sometimes multiple times. And then after a little while of being in that place, he would leave and he would assign and appoint people to lead what was left behind. And it turns out what was left behind was a little bit like a stall. I mean, there's some stuff that just needed to be put in order and cleaned up and considered. Maybe that's a rude way to consider to think about gospel work, of course, that lasted. But the reality is Paul cared, and he tells Timothy, here's what it's going to look like. I know that all that stuff happened, and it's kind of all in your, it's all being thrown around in your hands right now. Let me think about order. How do we order this household that is God's people? And so the word order, to order in the house, is the way we are considering this book. I'm going to start reading in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, and what we're going to see is is that service, who serves and what they do and how they serve, also needs to be ordered. So if you're thinking about a title for this, we might consider it ordered service. That's the most simple way to say it. But I think in in a more direct way, what I would title this section of 1 Timothy chapter 3 is serving standing. Serving standing. That's the idea. Let's read, starting in verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified. Not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves 
and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let me pause there. I know we've prayed multiple times this morning. I want to ask for insight into this passage. Let's pray. Well, God, we've, uh, in many ways, we've, we've done what we can do. We've gathered, we've sung, we're praying now, we're submitting ourselves to your word, which has been read in our midst. And what our deep desire now is, is that you would do what only you can do, that you would give us eyes to see, help us to hear. And then more than that, God, give us the grace, the confidence to be able to order our lives around Scripture. Make these words living and active for us here and now. God, I pray for comfort for those who are struggling with grief or doubt. Pray, God, for conviction for those of us who have sleepy areas or hardened areas of our lives. And we ask that you would do all of this so that you would be most glorified in us, that we would find the deepest kind of joys possible in Jesus. Holy Spirit, please do that in our midst. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Paul tells Timothy that there's a kind of standing that will be demonstrated, a kind of standing that will result from a certain way of living. And in this particular section of the Bible, he is describing what he calls service. Deacons, this word at the outset of verse 8, is the topic of this section of 1 Timothy. And that it's going to be serving, a particular kind of serving that will lead to a particular kind of standing in the midst of the church. Now, it is clear that deacons comes right on the heels of the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is a discussion of elders. We talked about that last week. And overall, these two together combine, I believe, a picture that Paul has for a functioning family or functioning household of God. There's always, or many, many, many times, a relationship between elders and deacons in Scripture. They come up together commonly. We find instruction here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7, and then 8 through 13. Titus chapter 1 mentions it as well. I'm just going to read a One verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, to show you that this pattern was not unique to Ephesus. It's not as though there were unique issues or problems there that made him only directly address these kinds of things. He has this as a refrain. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, and then note how he ends his introduction to the church in Philippi. With the overseers, that's that word, it's the word for episkopos in the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 3, and deacons. Episcopos, or elders, and deacons. This relationship, this complementary vision of the kind of order there will be in the church, Paul wants to speak to. And I think we should say at the outset that the ministry of overseers or elders and deacons are complementary, meaning they are engaged in the same mission. They are leveraged and pressed forward for the same purpose, and that is that the body of Christ would be as joyful and welcoming and God-glorifying a place as possible. So here, after describing overseers, which I think Paul has already assumed of Timothy that those kind of people are already in the midst of there, or it was a, a topic that they were familiar with, he does the same thing by describing what he calls deacons. 
So I want to answer a few questions about deacons this morning. First, where does the term deacon come from? And how is it being used? First in the Bible and then in the greater church. So first thing to mention and to say right at the outset, when he starts the word deacons in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, he is making a noun of a verb. You know how sometimes that happens in, in life, verbs become nouns, it becomes synonymous, and the opposite, nouns become verbs. Well, the word diakonos or diakoneo means to serve. It's as simple as that. When someone was so marked by serving the action of their life, so marked who they were, that became a label for the kind of person they were and became a role that they, they filled in the church. So the word deacon is often translated simply as to serve someone. And it becomes clear right away that this should be an important concept for Christians because we're the kind of people who follow Jesus who insisted that the greatest among us would be the servants of all. We follow a Jesus who insisted that he came not to be served, but to serve. So this is not a light section of the Bible to describe what does it mean for someone to be a servant. So deacon, often translated as servant or serve, is found all throughout the New Testament. And one of the things that's difficult to nail down when we try to figure out, well, where does the term come from and how should it function in a church is because it's used in so many different ways. Sometimes it's used, as I think is the case here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, almost in a kind of job description title kind of thing, as though it's an office, a dignified office. But then other times it is used very commonly and humbly, the way you might expect a word like servant or serve to be used. For instance, Martha is described whenever she interacts with Jesus as being the one who diakoneoed Jesus. She served him. She put herself in a particular role in his midst. She was someone who saw the tasks in front of her, more than that, saw the person in front of her and said, I'm going to arrange my efforts and my time and my life in order to best serve him. However, her actions not necessarily giving her an office, but the actions just say she served. This diakonos word shows up. The first time where this word to serve becomes a kind of role that we have to wrestle with is actually in Acts chapter 6. I don't know if you remember what's happening in Acts 6. We're not going to go there and read the whole thing, but I'll give you a little bit of a rundown. The church exploded. Much like the apostle Paul Peter had preached at Pentecost, and the church comes into existence. And there is so much going on, and there are so many thousands of people needing to be cared for, that in the midst of this, there are particular groups of widows, in this case Hellenistic widows, some prejudice towards them, who are being neglected, they're being neglected for Jewish widows. And there are complaints all over the place about who is doing what and what's not getting done, why aren't our resources coming over there, and I think that those people are being biased and prejudiced. And this is one of the first places where all of the beauty and the wonder of the organism, the lively organism of the early church, it shows that eventually there needs to be some organization as well. And so in the midst of this, in Acts chapter 6, the 
apostles who are there in the midst of this church, those who are leading and attempting to preach the gospel and to be faithful with with the task given to them, say, here's what needs to happen. We need to set apart. We need to set apart a group of men who are full of spirit and wisdom. They're to be chosen from the people by the people. They're going to be appointed. It's also very pragmatic because those leaders say, here's the thing, it's Hellenistic widows who are being neglected. They are Greek-speaking widows, so let's get Greek-speaking men with Greek-speaking names. They would be best equipped to serve that group of people. And those, that group of people are set aside and commissioned and sent out in order to fulfill the task so that the mission and the testimony of the church, not in opposition to the teaching, but the holistic, it's not an unspiritual work to meet the physical needs of people. Jesus insisted on this, and we must as well. These deacons or these servants, this kind of role is commissioned and honored in the midst of the church. Now, some people call that particular group of people in Acts chapter 6 maybe like the proto-deacons. They're a sort of early version of the thing that seems to become the norm in churches. In this particular instance, they are given a task and a role more than they're given some kind of office or standing. The role that they're given is simply honored in the midst of the church. They are commissioned and sent off to make sure that this particular task, this very important thing, is not left undone. And it's there in Acts chapter 6 that I believe we see as well the relationship between elders or overseers and deacons that I mentioned in Philippians chapter 1 and we see here in this third chapter. Because in the fourth verse of Acts chapter 6, the apostles say, we will commit ourselves to prayer and the word. We will commit ourselves to praying and to making sure that the gospel is being presented powerfully and consistently. And they say that as though what it does is it separates the fields of not only expertise, but the fields of activity and effort that each of these groups of people are going to do. They do not see the service of this group of men who are sent off to take care of this task. They don't see it in opposition to the mission that they're sent on they see it as one of the only ways that it will be able to be fulfilled. And once this group is sent off, and once some of the service of the church is put in order, what Scripture tells us is that the Word of God increased, and it led to a massive multiplication of the disciples. And what I see here is that the gathering of God's people who respond to the teaching of the Word of God need to be organized in such a way where their needs and the ongoing ministries of the church are handled in competent fashions. They're handled competently, they're handled consistently, so that we don't end up lording it over one another or neglecting legitimate needs, because this would be a stain on the testimony of the church, and it would ultimately undermine the thing that the church was trying to teach. So, Elders, overseers, deacons have a complementary, a working together ministry for the same mission of proclaiming Jesus in the world. And I think that's why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, let me tell you about the the leadership of the church, the beginning of the third chapter, oh, also on leadership, let's consider serving and the kind of standing that these people would have. From that point, from the 
verb becoming a noun, and from this group of people being set apart to serve, we find nearly universally from that moment forward, everywhere there is the church of God, there are recognized, honored, and commissioned people who everyone recognizes and says, this person is marked by service. They are a gift to the mission and the ministry of this church because of the way that they live in our midst and we believe that God has set them apart. They should be honored for the way that they serve. That is deacons. We have a couple of other questions, though, that come up as we go through the list. Just like in eldership, we said, well, what kind of people? What should we be looking for? Deacons has the same kind of list. And we say to ourselves, well, if there is service to be done in the church, and if these people will be marked by the way that they follow Jesus in His service, what will they look like? How will we know? You see, here's the thing about any kind of influence or any kind of role in the church. It is something that the Spirit of God must do, or it will fail. And so as much as we possibly can, what our goal needs to be is to recognize when God calls people to these things or when they're operating these ways, not necessarily manufacture them. Now, we pray for and we teach and we train, but the question becomes, how will we recognize when someone is a servant in our midst? How will we recognize the deacons in our world? And so he gives a list. Now, I'm going to pull out one qualification in the listing of of deacons here that I want to handle right up front before handling the rest of the list, which I think is honestly a wonderful reminder for every Christian about the kind of people we should be. Here's the big question right up front. I'm going to pull it right from the middle. The most interesting section, perhaps the most commented on section in all of 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13 is verse 11. Specifically, how does verse 11 open? The English Standard Version Bible, which is what I read from, starts out by saying, their wives likewise. Now, this is a case, and I hope this isn't too nuanced or odd, this is a case where I believe that the ESV translated this poorly. You see, the word that undergirds their wives here is the word that strictly means women. Women, likewise. Now, I don't know what version of the Bible you're reading right now or where you've come from in it, but you may see intuitively as you read through this why this becomes a conversation. Because if it says specifically their wives, then it has in view a group of men and their wives who are obviously going to be serving alongside them. But if it means women, likewise, and that word likewise usually is a way to introduce a new group, If it means women, then what Paul has in view here is an entirely separate group of people with no husbands in view whatsoever who also need to be honored and recognized for the way that they're serving in the midst of the church. Now, this particular section, of course, these are super smart people who translate it as their wives. So you can see the conundrum here. They're not doing this intentionally. It is possible for the same word for women to be used and to be spoken of without article to be wives. So here's how this comes down for us brass tacks. The question becomes, we already said we believe Scripture teaches a practice that overseers and elders 
and those who lead should be men. So the question for us is, when we recognize and believe that God is stirring up and putting deacons into our world, into our church, should they be only men, or is this something that should be honored for men and women alike? And I believe that what we should do in cases where it seems like, well, we're not sure exactly what's going on here with verse 11, one of the best principles for ever interpreting the Bible is to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. I think that's a fair enough way to say it. We should always use the Scripture to interpret the Scripture. And there's going to be one verse specifically that I believe gives us freedom and I think informs the way that I approach this particular passage, and that is that the role, not an authoritative office, not teaching and preaching and setting the doctrine of the church, but the role of being like Jesus and being Jesus-hearted and having the character of Jesus in the midst of the mission of Jesus, that that is, of course, something that should be recognized of men and women alike. And I'll show you one instance. Romans chapter 16, verse 1. In Romans chapter 16, verse 1, the same Paul who is writing to Timothy about how this should be organized, the same Paul says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. And then you see the next words. Guess what the word is in Greek? A servant of the church at Cancri. You know what word it is? A deacon of the church. Diakonos, same noun, same word used when Paul is telling Timothy how to organize the people there in the midst. Now, if you wanted to, you could read, I mean, I've seen almost full book-length treatments of these kind of things. And there are denominations in the past who have said, we're not really sure if Paul wants to use that word in Romans 16. Of course, he can and he should, but maybe we shouldn't because I think that 1 Timothy chapter 3 says wives. I think that is an overly conservative misrepresentation of the kind of role that a deacon is. And so, at our church, because this word here is women and because so often, maybe I could just say it as bluntly as this, so often the people who most exemplify this kind of service throughout the New Testament are commended and named as women. So this role, this calling of God, this kind of character that's built into someone, and I believe the public acknowledgement, the honoring due people like this, I think is open to men and women alike. It is not an office. It is not given organizational or bylaw authority. It is not to set the overriding doctrine of the church, but it is an honorable position with standing in God's sight, with wonderful influential power in the way that a church ought to function. And so, because this diaconate ministry, I don't believe that the way that Paul's envisioning it here, nor the way that it's used in the rest of the Bible, because it's not largely authoritative, it's not strictly a doctrinal teaching ministry, though clearly they need to be instructed in the faith. It should be open to all whom the Spirit of God moves to serve in this way. So if you looked through the ministries of our church, I hope that you would joyfully see and find the numerous women who serve in roles like this, who I would say, let me join the Apostle Paul and say, I commend to you our sister, a deacon of the church.
So I wanted to get that out of the way because I think it takes up, not out of the way, I wanted to hit it first because it takes up a big middle section of 1 Timothy chapter 3 that we're about to go through. And I know that if I hadn't addressed it, you may be saying to yourself, well, what do we do with this? And man, Lance, you spent the last two weeks making a big deal about the men and women thing. And so I thought that we would say from the outset, this is how it functions and the way we read it. It may very well have been that in this specific context in Ephesus that husbands and wives did serve together, and so the language makes sense. But nonetheless, whichever people are in this particular role, there is a list of qualifications to say, look for these kinds of people. And so let's go through the list of the kinds of people they should be, and I think that this ought to be a call to all of us to think about our character and our lives, just what kind of people are we? And what are we becoming? First, I think you could summarize 1 Timothy chapter 3 says that deacons, anyone who serves in this role, must be, it says, dignified. One person called this grave. They must be a person who is realistic and practical and dependable. This makes sense largely because of the kind of work they ought to be doing. They need to be respectable and trustworthy, to have a kind of self-mastery if we borrow the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 3 about their lives. He goes on from deacons being dignified to a use of the tongue, not double-tongued. And then he mentions the same use of language and words in verse 11, that the women likewise should not be slanderers. And I want to make the point here that this is perhaps one of the most poignant differences between elders and deacons. Elders were instructed in the use of the tongue as well. They needed to be apt to teach. They were the kind of people who would be willing to step in to be equipped in Scripture and to correct if necessary by using their tongues boldly but respectably in service of the gospel. And here, as a great reminder for all Christians, Paul says, remind those who serve in the midst of the church that the things that they say matter, that the use of our tongues is a powerful, powerful tool. You know, James speaks specifically to this. So the tongue is a, the rudder of a massive ship. The tongue can be a small flame that sets a whole forest afire. This idea of the use of our mouths is so important in the way that we serve one another and the way that we either honor or dishonor the ministry of the church that's in our midst the way that we talk to one another, the way that we think, the words that we use, our willingness to use our tongues to build up and not to tear down. Paul says, make sure that deacons have mastered this area. I think a good way to say not double-tongued would be to say that they are honest and have integrity in the things that they say. This would outlaw or mean that we should be on guard against maybe two sides of the same coin of being double-tongued. One is the use of flattery. Here's a useful and a helpful definition of flattery. He says, don't let deacons be those who flatter. Someone who flatters would be someone who will say something to your face they would never say behind your back. That's what flattery is. They say something to you that they just don't really believe and would never say to anyone else. That's how you know it's flattery. And on the flip side of the same coin, how can you be double-tongued? Well, everyone knows what it is to be a gossip. You see, a gossip is is something that would be said behind your back that would never be said to your face. It's 
two sides of the same coin. We've all been tempted to this. We've all been recipients of this. And sometimes I wonder if we just don't believe how powerful our words are. Because this sin, this area of dishonesty, this area of flattery or of gossip or slander, as it's mentioned in verse 11, is far too often tolerated. It's tolerated in the name of, I'm just venting. It's tolerated in the name of, I'm just wondering, I'm concerned for so-and-so. It's tolerated in the name of, could we pray for? It's tolerated in the name of, hey, I just, I just want things to get better, and I'm, I'm just critical. I'm just trying to be a little bit critical here. I'm just trying to, just trying to help. And then other times, honestly, it's just so easy, and it's how we feel that I don't even think any excuses are given. We just don't use our tongues well. And this can happen in leadership as well. I heard a pastor one time say that when he was young in ministry, he saw himself as a, as a peacemaker, an influencer, a persuader, and he would get people aligned to be able to do things. He was a consensus builder. And at one point, he got called out on having couched a particular issue in one way to someone in a room and then changing the way that it was presented in another room. And a man came up to him and said, you're just nothing but a, a round-heeled salesman. And so, of course, I had to say, what do you mean by that? And I guess the picture is that if you have round heels, you can lean back on them and spin around as much as you need to. Not double-tongued, honest, direct, straightforward, have an integrity. The kind of people who say, I don't want to start forest fires, so I have learned to build up and not to tear down with my tongue. It's a great reminder. And can I just say this too? I believe that the everyday conversation, the everyday prayers, the everyday encouragements between people in a church, the things that happen at the coffee out there, the stuff that happens after the service right here, the meetings after the meetings, they speak more powerfully and have more of an impact on the testimony and the witness and the power of our church than anything that I could ever do with a microphone. And if we're the kind of place that produces unbelievable podcasts and content, if Brian's ministry takes off to, to Mars and everyone just says, you wouldn't believe the kind of stuff that this church produces, but the experience of our people is a backbiting, dishonest, flattering, conniving, scheming, tearing one another down, gossipy world, a cesspool of the tongue, we have dishonored Jesus in unspeakable ways. And I think that it's way worse. So this kind of thing shouldn't be looked over, but it needs to be, it says here it's a qualification. It's something that needs to embody who we are. So the use of the tongue is important, of course, for pastors and elders. But it is so important for the people who serve. I'm going to move on. 
It says similarly, many of these are overlapping with the instructions, as I mentioned at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 3, many of the instructions for these people are simply just good Christianity put on display. So he goes on and he says they should not be greedy, not greedy for dishonest gain. They would have had opportunity to go into people's homes. They would have been the ones who were carrying checkbooks to handle the needs of the widows. They would have had resources to care for orphans in their midst. And they needed to be trustworthy. I think of the number of, oh man, I just missed a good pun, the countless people who count money here at our church. You see how that worked? I'm grateful because I've made it a point early on in my ministry to know as little about finances as possible. Not because I don't like it. I love finance stuff. I think about it often in my personal life. But in the midst of the church, if we did not have trustworthy deacons, people who actually took care of offerings and took care of who was giving and year-end statements and that kind of stuff, I do not believe we could be as effective as we have been in ministry. And it is important that those people not be greedy. They would have, had, they have opportunities to steward the resources of the church in a particular way. And this is not a small thing. So Paul says, make sure that deacons are trustworthy with things, that they're not overly materialistic, that they're not in it to up their lifestyle. He goes on and he says that it matters what they believe. They should hold to the faith with a clear conscience, the mystery of the faith. You see this holding. I don't think it should be too much put in opposition to teaching or instructing in the faith, but it's evidently there that elders are more responsible for not only holding the faith, but then instructing in a particular way. Deacons, it says, should be holding to it with a clear conscience. In other words, they should be the kind of people who practice what they preach, or they practice what is preached. They have integrity from heart, mind, and hands. It's consistent all the way through. One of the additional qualifications that's mentioned here is a demonstration of self-control is they're not given to much wine. They're not addicted to much wine. It's funny, I'm not sure we'd even use the word addicted if it was not much wine. <laughs> I'm addicted to just like a thimble full of wine. But to be self-controlled in this area. A person's family is in view. How do they lead at home? What do romantic relationships look like? Their children finding their homes to be respectable places where they can grow and know that they're loved. Is the Word of God is a bit of the instruction there. And then finally, Paul says, because these roles are so important, because those who would serve, those who would put on display the life of Jesus in our midst, because this is so important, let them be proven not unproven, not too quick to throw someone into this. And I think what this means is not necessarily put everybody on probation and see if they fail, but instead, by the, by the time someone serves as a deacon in a church, it should be so obvious to everyone that if we ever say, you know what, let's take a moment and honor this person, I think that we should do what is right and good in Scripture, and that is to call someone what they are. This person is a deacon at heart. I think what this means is that Paul tells Timothy, that should have been so obvious in the midst of the church that everyone says, well, duh, 
it's about time. We've all known this for years. But there is a consistent faithfulness in the life of a person who has given themselves in service of the church. So this group, complementary in relationship with the elders, holding the mystery of the faith, putting forth the testimony of Jesus into the world, is no small matter in any church. I mean, we don't say it often enough, but I am extremely grateful for the deacons at Four Oaks Midtown. There are entire ministries that would not exist or would fall into complete and utter disrepair or worse, disrepute if it were not for God by His Spirit stirring people up to serve in these ways. I think if I had to think practically about where we're at as a church right now, we are right now exactly at the size where what matters most about us is the way that we serve one another. We are exactly at the right size where things could fall between the cracks. We are exactly at the size of a church where just a public ministry can kind of gather people in a crowd kind of thing, or we could, just, we could get some things in order and maybe not have it fall apart, but the true life and the ability for us to make an impact in our world, to grow and to keep the people who say, I feel drawn here, is going to largely depend on how the Spirit of God moves in our midst. And the more of us who say, I cannot wait, I cannot be held back from gaining a standing like this, when our first instinct is to say, I want a serving standing in the church. And this is what Paul tells to Timothy. People who serve like that, they have for themselves a good standing. And I don't want to over-spiritualize that. I think that this should be a kind of honoring, a good standing, both in this world, but of course in the world to come. The kind of assurance that comes with says, saying, I am walking in Jesus' footsteps. I am not here to be served, but to serve. The more we can have that kind of spirit, the more strong we will be as a church. I was thinking about Easter weekend. <laughs> I was thinking about Easter weekend. Now, I stress about Easter weekend a lot. It's the Super Bowl. I start thinking a month ahead of time. Well, how am I going to frame this? What do I say? Sometimes I'll even, I mean, it's like I'm driving and I'm just thinking about, you know, ahead of time, well, what do I say about the resurrection with that? And is it going to come off okay? And like, well, how many visitors are there going to be? I mean, I stress about it. But I want you to know, especially after the Easter weekend, I look around and I think to myself, you know what, for all of the good that happens on a weekend like this, I don't really do much. Do you remember all the stuff that happened on a weekend like that? All of it happens because our church is strong with people who serve. It's really unbelievable. It's, it's absolutely amazing. I love getting to be a part of a place where I feel a little bit like Paul, where if someone bopped in and said, hey, what's going on? I would want to be like, oh, let me, let me walk you around. I commend to you this person and this person and this person. Do you see what happens and it wouldn't happen if it wasn't for them? I commend to you this couple. You wouldn't believe what they do to serve the vulnerable. 
You wouldn't believe the kind of leadership and influence they have in outreach. Oh, I want to introduce you to these people. You wouldn't believe the way that they care, the way that they give, the way that they organize. It's the strength of our church, just period. We are only going to be as strong as that instinct, that Christ-likeness is at work in us, in us. And I think that if we would fail, and if apathy, the natural flow of apathy would be in our midst, it would be because we took on a burden of leadership from too few a people. Or we had such a terrible anemic view of leadership that it only included all of the very public things. So this role, the deacons, exists to complement and to come alongside the stewardship of the gospel in God's church. We believe that it is open, joyfully open to men and women alike, that the Spirit of God moves in men and women alike to create the character of Jesus and then separates them to a place of honor and standing in the church for their service. I want to take some time. I want to pray that God does this more in our midst and that we would take on his character. Let's pray. God, I pray that our temptation to just not believe you sometimes, I sense in myself, I I just don't believe that serving will bring greatness. I confess to sometimes just not wanting to Help me to believe that the last will be first. Jesus, help us to follow and to be more like you. Not all of us longing to be powerful CEOs, but Jesus, help us to be more like you. You gave yourself. You served on our behalf. God, I ask that you would honor, care for, bless the servants in our midst. Thank you for them. Help us to organize ourselves well, all of the wonderful opportunities of ministry we have in this broken world. I pray that we would give good care, that we would have energy toward making things happen for those who need to be served. We're grateful, God, for your spirit, And we pray that you'd work this in us, in Jesus' name. Amen.